Dave here. Before diving into this next episode, I wanted to share a few things that have been bouncing around in my head recently. The stated goal of this project is to create a living oral history about street performing and those who embrace the lifestyle. And with each episode that gets released, another chapter in a much larger book is created. But it's important to realize that each episode is also a snapshot of who that person was at the time the recording was made. It's a moment in time, and over the years, people can change. So consider this whenever you listen to one of these podcasts. For me, the important thing is that these interviews and this record of our world exists at all. Had it not started when it did, we'd have far less evidence of some of the people who are no longer with us. It's been an incredible journey for me because I've been able to enjoy interviewing or interviews with some of the heroes that shaped the performer I became and the friends I've made along the way. Inevitably, there are moments in each recording that I can either relate to or learn from. For me, even after 37 years in the game, it's good to hear the lessons that others have learned along the way and that I need to be reminded of from time to time. I hope it feels the same for you, too. All right, let's get to it. We went to Kingston, and man, we didn't know shit. Like, Dynamite, I'm real sorry we stepped on your show. We didn't know any better. Um, and we, I mean, we didn't know anything. We didn't know sure. that they were going to make us put up and take down the aerial rig for every single show. We thought we'd be able to leave it in one place. You know, and I mean, right. in fairness, they, we did tell them we wanted it in one place and they did tell us they would do it. And it was a surprise when we got there, you know, whereas now, right. like it's a selling point that the rig goes up in 10 minutes and it's part of the show and it comes down in five minutes after the hat pass, you know, but at the right. time it was like, holy crap, what are we going to do? It's so hot. We're outside. We don't know what to to wear. And it was really trial by fire, but it was so much fun. And I mean, Jacob and Sophie were there, uh, Dream State Circus and Dynamike yep. was there. And there was an Australian band called Oka that did a lot of really cool didgeridoo yep. and synth music. And we did some combined shows with them where they played for us. And we're like, this is a whole new world. Did it seem like it worked or it was a better fit for that show than the Renaissance Festival world had been? It was a much better fit and we made a lot more money. <laughs> uh... Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. I have a theory that there are two types of people in the world, those who set specific goals and have a laser focus on achieving them, and those who have a more general sense of what they want to achieve and allow life to push them towards those goals with a less proactive approach. Neither is right or wrong, but the difference in style tells you a lot about the individual you're interacting with. Allison Williams very definitely falls into the camp of those who set specific goals, not to mention her tenacious drive to realize anything she sets her mind to. This can be a powerful and intimidating combination, and yet an incredibly effective one, one she's employed in the context of the shows she's been a part of and the way she's done business. Now, during this interview, I do my best to play devil's advocate because I know Allison's approach can sometimes rub people the wrong way. But I also have a huge admiration for her because she set some pretty lofty goals and had the sheer determination to will them into existence. Dare to dream big enough, and the results can be nothing short of a life filled with some pretty amazing stories from the pitch. I'm David Aiken, and I'm in Vancouver, and you are... Allison Williams, and I am in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. 
And this is a conversation that's really been meaning to happen for about four years. I remember <laughs> you coming to uh, Niagara Falls in 2012 to maybe have this conversation. And then that got postponed till later. And then we tried to do it in Dundas in 2015. And then again this year, 2016. And it just never quite happened. Surprise, I can't run a festival and like block out an hour to do awesome radio stuff with you. <laughs> yeah, and, and now we know that we can actually make it happen via Skype, which will hopefully be good because I'm really excited to try this new technology that we're plugging in on both sides of the connection to see if it'll work. Now, I sort of want to preface all of this by saying that we hadn't met until I think it was like officially met until the Sault Ste. Marie Buskers Festival in 2010. And then I remember working with you at the Chrysler event in 2011, mm -hmm. in June that year. And what was really impressive to me at the time was that you had sort of gathered together three different sort of worlds that you had inhabited for years, the world of street performing, the world of Renaissance festivals, and the world of circus, and combined them into a corporate event that made you look great because you were a great organizer and made it all Thank happen. You. But tell me a bit more about the backstory about how you got into all three worlds. Um, you know, and it's funny that you talk about when we met as well, because as it happens, you were the first street performer I ever saw. Um, when I was uh, 14, 15, 16 years old, I had gotten to the stage where I really could not comfortably live with my parents for the summer. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, so I ended up living with my aunt in Ottawa, and I was reading tarot cards on the street in the Byward Market with my little cardboard sign that said, Fortunes Told, and I'd sit down at the cafes with people. And you, I think at that point, must have been 18 or 19, and you were the checkerboard guy, and I saw you in the parking lot of the fish restaurant. And we didn't meet, oh, yeah. we didn't talk to each other or anything like that, but I saw you a whole bunch of times, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And meanwhile, in my home in Florida, I had started volunteering at the Bay Area Renaissance Festival, uh, being, you know, a washing well wench or a princess or, you know, whatever I was that year. And throughout the course of that, I started to meet people who had these really cool skills. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, this is really neat. There's people who eat fire. There's people who swallow swords. This is awesome. I should learn some of this. And um, I learned fire eating and uh, got minimal help from uh, another performer, just enough so that like I didn't set myself and my tent on fire. You know, it's like me with a rag wrapped around a chair leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, then I met my ex-husband, uh, Todd Espeland, who became my partner. I started eating fire in nightclubs and he was eating fire in Las Vegas. And when we met, we're like, oh, we both eat fire. You know, clearly this is meant to be. And right. we put together a Renaissance Festival act called the Daring Devilinis that was a fire-eating, bed-of-nails comedy stunt show uh, based on Italian Commedia dell'arte characters because Todd had just gotten out of the dell'arte school of physical theater in Northern California. Yeah, in Blue Lake. Yeah. yeah. So we spent uh, 10 years on and off the road, primarily doing Renaissance festivals, some corporate events. But up to that point, I had never done a busker festival. So I want to back yeah. up just a sec. So this all started what year approximately? I mean, you were saying um, mid-80s, you saw me in Ottawa. Yeah, so I started doing nightclubs in like 91, 92, and I started touring with Todd in uh, early 1995. Nice. Yeah, it was really fun. We were originally the Isabella and Arlecchino show, and then we discovered that nobody could pronounce or spell Arlecchino, so we went with the Daring Devilinis, and then we discovered how many people could not spell or pronounce Devilinis, and Daring was a challenge for some of them, too. <laughs> so did you change your name to make it easier for people to pronounce? We did not at that point. Enough people got the Daredevil pun that we were okay with it. 
when you got to start with Todd, what was the show that you were doing? I mean, it was fire breathing, obviously, but what other uh, skills and things? It was a half an hour. Um, Usually Todd opened with either Rollabola or Rolling Globe, and he did passing his body through the hoops on the balancing equipment. Uh, Then we ate fire. We had some audience participation. Uh, We did a tongue transfer with a guy from the audience lighting a torch off my tongue. Then we busted out the bed of nails. Then Todd lay on the bed of nails and I stood on him. Then I lay on the bed of nails and we got a big guy out of the audience to stand on me. And that was really like the place where I would call that kind of the first phase of my performing career, which is you got to have a trick. You got to have another trick. You got to have a trick. And I didn't realize it, even though we reference it in the show. I mean, that's where we first had the line, you know, this is fire eating. Fire eating's not hard. What's hard is taking a three second trick and turning it into a 15 minute routine with comedy and audience participation. So was that the school of performing for you? Was the Renaissance Festival circuit then? It really was. And I think I was really helped that the Renaissance Festival is very much a community. Like the people who go on the road and work at all the different Renaissance festivals, they also live together in a campground on the weekend. So you get that camaraderie that you have with a busker festival where you're all holed up in the same hotel together, except that it goes for eight weeks at a stretch. You know, so there are people who became my dearest friends who are still my dearest friends. And people were very kind. You know, people came up to us and gave us tips about, you know, oh, if you time this joke this way instead of that way, or why don't you add this joke? Or, you know, you know, when you do this trick, you should do this thing. And it's also an environment where because the Renaissance Festival is, you know, six weekends or eight weekends long, and everybody's doing four shows a day, you get to watch just about everybody's show. And it's so educational to watch the same show over and over and over again and see how they react to an audience and see what's improv and what's not really improv. Now, I got a question for you with regards to all of that. Mm-hmm. With, I know certainly the street performance world, there are a lot of people talk about there being a formula. And with the Renaissance Festival world, I imagine there's also a similar sort of formulaic approach to putting a show together and making it work in a 30 minute time slot. Did it end up being a little bit incestuous in terms of everyone kind of feeding off of each other, seeing the same things all the time, being influenced by the same people? Yes and no. I mean, I think there's definitely a Renaissance Festival style. And I think the act that really embodies this is a group called the Tortuga Twins. And they've been going since the mid 80s, and they're still going. And they have a style that comes out of Sack Theater. Um, and Sack right. Theater was the improv troupe in Orlando that got bought by Disney. And now they're still Sack Theater, but they also have their performance style in Disney. And they're the people who They probably didn't invent it either, but they're the people who codified, you know, the audience volunteer staggered over here, he staggered over there, he spun in a circle, and he died over there. You know, so they were really like this false cueing of audience members that so many of us do. I learned that kind of false cueing where it looks like you're telling him to do one thing, but you can switch it and make it look like you're actually telling him to do something else. And the Tortuga Twins also have this very rhythmic style with a lot of speaking in unison. And that's something we Mm -hmm. used a lot in Aerial Angels. And that's something Todd and I used a lot in Daring Devolini's is that kind of, you know, here's the joke, here's the setup, here's the setup. Now in unison, bam. And there's like a rhythm, I think, that's very common to a lot of Renfest shows. But at the same time, I don't know that it's that incestuous because when everybody knows everybody else's show, you get called out for copying really fast if you copy. Right. You know, there's only so many ways you can do a two-man sword fighting comedy show, though. 
You know, there's mm. like six of them. <laughs> right. And it becomes so, very character driven. Question then with regards to that Renaissance rhythm, the show when it was on a Renaissance festival, you said you also did corporate work with Todd. Did it translate directly from we just put on different clothes and we go out and do the same show or how did it work? We translated to corporate extremely poorly. Like, I mean, looking back at the stuff we were doing, we didn't have a corporate booker. You know, we didn't have an agent. All of the corporate stuff we got was people who saw us at the Renaissance Festival and loved our show and then brought us into their ballroom for, you know, their company meeting or whatever. We didn't suck. You know, it wasn't bad, but it needed the context of the Renaissance Festival, I think, to be a real flashy and entertaining show. And as Renaissance Festival performers, we really demanded more audience interaction than a lot of corporate audiences are comfortable having. And because so much of our show was character driven, it was not as easy as it was with my later show, Ariel Angels, to go, okay, you know, this gig, we'll talk and make jokes. That gig, we're going to wear our nice leotards and look pretty and start when the music starts and stop when the music stops. And I think it's to move into the corporate world, I think you have to be very fluid with the nature of your show because not everybody is comfortable with you repeatedly violating the fourth wall in the, we, the way that we do at the Renaissance Festival or in the street. Sure, of yeah. course. So the work with Todd led you, I mean, what caused the demise of that particular show? Okay, so we had a really good run. We did like 10 years. We were doing what was perceived as, you know, the best Renaissance festivals on the circuit, that kind of thing. And we started teaching university. I have a master's of fine arts in playwriting. Uh, Todd at the time had a BA in theater and he had a graduate certificate from the Del Arte School of Physical Theater. And we were teaching mask and movement theater in between all of this. We owned a lot of masks. We went into high schools and into universities and taught their theater classes, mask workshops. And sometimes we directed entire mask shows. Um, like we did Midsummer Night's Dream where there was this whole cast of boy and girl fairies and they were all in masks. And people really liked our teaching, and I still really love teaching. And we became sabbatical replacements, which is where a university professor takes a year off to focus on their own research, their own development, and somebody has to be brought in to teach for them. And so mm. we spent a year at Western Michigan University, where we had previously been three years in a row to work on shows and to teach workshops. And we really liked teaching. And so all of a sudden, we were teaching five days a week. And then on Friday afternoon, we drove five hours down to Dayton, Ohio, and did Renaissance Festival and did eight shows on Saturday, Sunday. And then Sunday night, we drove back up to Michigan and then taught on Monday again. And it was just really tremendously stressful, you know. And in that time, we thought we were only moving to Michigan for a year, but schools kept hiring us. There's like three universities in town, and we just kept rotating between them. And in that time, Todd was discovering he really liked being in one place. He really liked doing more traditional theatrical work. And, you know, that was what he wanted to do. And I was feeling like, you know, I don't really want to be off the road. And at that point, I had started doing aerial fabric and aerial hoop with a couple of girls that I was in a contact improvisation, which is like improvisational dance troupe with. And Sarah and, and Beth, that's in Michigan. That was in Michigan. Sorry, that was in Kalamazoo, yeah. Michigan. And uh, Sarah and Beth and I were doing aerial stuff because Sarah owned equipment and I had access to space because I was a professor, you know? Right. So we took advantage of the free space and we started doing some routines. And I mean, at this point, like aerial now is an explosion. There is aerial everywhere. You can take an aerial class at your local yoga studio. You can take mm -hmm. it at Burning Man. You know, you can get into aerial wherever. That was not the case at this time. 
what year? What were you talking about? This was the early 2000s, like 1998, 1999, 2000. And at this point, nobody had seen it before. Like for the first five years that I did Ariel, there would be somebody at every single show who would come up and say, I never saw that in real life before. You know, it was right. it was not anywhere near as common as it is now. Now everybody does it. Um, but Sarah and Beth and I were having a good time. And I'm like, well, hey, maybe we should pick up some of these RenFest gigs that Todd and I used to do. Wouldn't that be fun? You know, and right. so we put together the Aerial Angels and started doing shows first at Renaissance festivals. And then we discovered two things. Number one, that... We didn't have a character-driven show at that time, the way Renaissance festivals really needed us to be a character-driven show where the tricks are an excuse for the audience to spend time with you. We had a skill-driven show, and we did not yet know how to sell the skill-driven show. And number two, we needed to work to recorded music, good, loud, pop, recorded, blasting through a sound system music. Which doesn't happen at Renaissance festivals, does it? Exactly. We had one festival in Texas that wanted us badly enough that we're like, we don't do opening gate. We don't do closing gate. We don't march in your parade. You have to buy us lunch. You have to pay for our hotel, which Renaissance festivals do not typically do. And by the Mm. way, we work to recorded music and we want to play it loud. And they wanted us enough to say yes. But other than that, it was really challenging to work within the artistic vision because at the Renaissance festival... Everybody is banding together to create a unified illusion for the guests. We're all doing the cheesy thee and thou and my lord and my lady. And the stage shows do have anachronisms in them. And the stage shows often don't work with, you know, the faux British accent or whatever. But we're all trying to create that illusion. And um, we started getting into corporates. And then we booked the Kingston Busker Festival. To go back for a second, so when this new show started happening, the mm-hmm. show with Todd had sort of started to dwindle at that point? I mean, you'd already- Yeah, we, had, we stopped doing it. We had a year where we're like, okay, those are the last shows we're going to do and we're not going to book it anymore. Right, yeah. right. So it was a natural transition for you to go from one show to this next show. Yeah, and it really was like I finished a season with Todd and we're like, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to actively try to book the show anymore. If something happens, great, but otherwise we're not doing it. And then I, I was like, oh, I should pick up these gigs. And I basically like replaced the slots that I had been doing at festivals with this other show with the Ariel Angels show. Nice. I just wanted to put a little bow on that chapter of your life before going too far into the Aerial Angel stuff. Totally. Uh, So Aerial Angels, one of the biggest selling features is this rig that you've got. Has it been the same rig from the very get-go? It has. I actually went to the technical director at Western Michigan University where I was teaching at the time. And I was like, Tim, I need an aerial rig. And I need a rig that can set up in less than an hour and take down in less than an hour, which was my optimistic projection at the time. I said, Mm -hmm. it has to fit in the back of a pickup truck, which is what I drove at the time, although it also fit on the roof of my Toyota Camry. And I said, every piece has to be carryable by one person and it has to be put upable by three people because that's how many people we had in the show. And we discovered later we need audience members to like foot so that it doesn't slide. But, you know, we worked into the show. It became part of the setup routine. And so Tim, made our first rig and it was bare metal and it was ugly and it had a lot of like bolts and stuff sticking out of it which was not Tim's fault it was like the best that we knew how to do at the time 
And then we kind of gradually started tweaking and improving it over the next few years. We did some stuff to the top that gave us more leg room in there. We did some stuff that uh, made it a little bit more stable. And then finally, the crowning moment was we painted it hot pink. We took it to a powder coat place, you know, the kind of people who paint motorcycle tanks and stair railings. And we're like, make this sucker bright and beautiful. And all of a sudden, we became the people with the hot pink rig. And that made us very identifiable. And also at the time, we were the only people on the circuit with an aerial rig. I think now there's eight or nine groups on circuit with an aerial rig. Okay, cool. So with that particular aerial rig, it was kind of a trial by fire. You didn't go to a circus production place to get it made. Yeah, Tim and I designed it together. And then I hold the patent on it. And has it been replicated for other groups? Yes. um, I've probably sold 15 or 20 rigs in the last five, 10 years. And it's kind of cool, actually, because it's like having a little bit of me out there in different places. Um, I was responsible for an aerial club setting up at the University of Alaska Anchorage. I helped an aerial club set up at Bard College. Uh, Kalamazoo College, where I was teaching, now has a circus club and a circus class as part of their phys ed. Um, There's a a gym in Traverse City, Michigan, where we taught for a while, and then they started their own aerial program, and they bought one of our rigs to use for performances, and you know, and so, and I think that's really cool. And I mean, it's funny because it really, in some ways, ties into one of my key philosophies, which is that there is enough. Like when I first started doing Renaissance festivals, and even to some extent when I first started doing street, everybody was real protective about, you know, I don't want to share my contacts with you. I don't want to share my clients with you. I don't want to say how much money I'm making. And there's like a certain competitiveness there. And I can't remember when I made the shift, but I started realizing there is enough. There are enough audience members, there is enough money, there is enough love, there are enough gigs, there is enough. It doesn't hurt me to share. And from that point, I started trying as much as I could to like give away with both hands as often as I could, as generously as I could, without thinking that it was going to necessarily come back to me directly, but just with the idea Mm. that I would like the world I'm working in to be a better place for everybody. And that sounds kind of like, oh, you know, Pollyanna, what are we going to do with a problem like Maria? But I really do believe it. And so I do stuff like I say to people, this is how much money we made, and this is how much money I think you can make there. So you should ask for more than us because I bet you can get it. You know, or this is the person to talk to, but the person who has the real power is so-and-so. Or, oh, you want to work Renaissance festivals. Well, let me tell you, you should hit up these festivals first because they're the ones that are going to treat you better. You know, it's it benefits everybody when we raise the tide. Now, let me throw this out at you you are a very strong individual as a performer and you have a very large show so the fact Mm -hmm. that you've just said oh i like to share i've seen situations where on the street you get the biggest crowds simply because you've got a big tall rig and you've got a a very powerful show and everything else so it's sort of like this weird juxtaposition of you wanting to share but also also wanting to have it all at the same time it seems like there's this weird sort of well, and I think it's I think it's that thing where you have to be responsible for what you're doing because yeah, we do often pull a very large crowd because the rig is conspicuous from a very long distance away. You know, the same way that Alakazam stands on a big tall pole for part of his show. You know, why sure. else would you lie on a bed of nails on top of a pole? You know, because it it goes a, a far distance away. And I think that's something where because I've also cycled a lot of new people into my show. It's very important to know the etiquette of the space you're in. And so Mm -hmm. some of it is stuff like 
if it's raining and there's only enough crowd for one show, it doesn't have to be us. That's fine. You know, we'll pick it up another time. We'll pick it up later, you know, and it's dangerous for us anyway. So it benefits us as well. Um, if somebody else is running late, you know, that's okay. Please don't do it to us all the time, but it's not like we're going to have trouble getting an audience once we put up the rig. You know, I think that's a place where we try really hard to be considerate of others, like not have the volume too loud, not put the rig up during somebody else's show. Um, you know, and that's how putting up the rig became part of our show rather than something we had to do before the show, because it is a crowd gather and it's not fair to put it up when somebody else is doing a show on the next pitch over because it pulls the eye, you know, and I think yeah. a lot of that's just having to be very, very conscious of what you're doing. I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to do a different kind of show because I get a lot of people, but it is something that you have to be, it's, 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 easy to be rude when you're the tallest show on the street and you have to actively work against being rude. You know, I'm sure there are people I have stepped on in the past. I'm positive there are people I have stepped on in the past, you know, but it was unintentional. And if I knew about it, I tried to buy them some beers and make it up to them. So going back, you transitioned out of the the show with Todd. You're starting doing the show with these other two women that you're working with and it's starting to have great success. You get enough interest in it that you're doing it at Renaissance festivals. Then you hit Kingston, boom, it really takes off. And this is sort of early two thousands at this point. Is that right? We did Kingston in 2005. I want to say, I think it was 2005. We did Kingston. Yeah. And that was the key for us to go, Oh, we want to work these busker festival things. And we want to do that all the time. Okay. And Kingston's the beginning of the season, really. It's in early July. Did you have other festivals that first year? Did you start doing more street performing work? I don't know that we did. I think we were still doing Renaissance festivals the rest of that summer. We Uh might have gotten one more busker festival. I mean, I know we didn't go out west. I know we didn't have Ottawa that early. Mm -hmm. Kingston might have been the only show we did that year on the busker realm. But it tweaked you enough. You went, that's okay. This is a venue. This is where we should work. This is how we should do it. And then making that transition from the Renaissance Festival world to the street performance world, you brought, I'm sure, with you a ton of the skills set from the Renaissance Festival world to the street. But were there things that you had to transition, had to move, had to change drastically to make it work on the street? Um. Yeah, no, it it wasn't hard to go into the street. And I think it's because of the way we did it, because the year after Kingston, and yeah, it would have been 2005, because 2006, we went to Linz, and we did Austrian busker festivals, and we did Italian festivals, and we toured Europe all of 2006. And so we got a chance to work out the visual and the acts of the show without having to be funny on top of it. Like, we only had to know enough of the local language to say, hello, welcome, this is us, you you know, we're going to pass the hat now. Please give us your money. Thank you so much for coming to see the show. So I think we really, we were able to balance, okay, so we're learning how to do a show for a different audience, but we don't also have to handle, am I funny? Because we were handling, oh my goodness, I am exhausted. Because I will say doing the street is about 10 times more exhausting because in the Renaissance Festival, you're on the same stage all day and you have a quiet, Mm -hmm. private backstage to sit in. Whereas Mm -hmm. like with Lintz, yeah, there's a green room, but it's 12 blocks away and you may not have time to get there. And, you know, and they have shows in the afternoon where the pavement was so hot, we had to slosh buckets of water on it before we could stand on it because we're barefoot in the show. You know, so I think it was more learning 
learning how to handle the physical demands of the show. And, mm-hmm. and that was really challenging. But I think we really lucked out that we got to learn the physical demands of the show. And then we came back to America and Canada and got funny. But we didn't have to learn to get funny at the same time that we were learning the physical demands. And then our other secret weapon was, at that point, both Beth and Sarah had moved on. And I was working with Zay Weaver, who was with us for six years, seven years, and is in Los Angeles now, and with Kimberly Craig, then Kimberly Olson-Wheeler. And Kimberly is now part of the street circus with her husband, Dan Craig. And Kimberly came to us because it was either work at SeaWorld for another summer or come do this like crazy little show in a venue she'd never heard of with people she'd never met before. And at the time, like you would never know it now because Kim is like sparkly and beautiful and bright. And she's always been at an incredible level of skill. Like she's always been one of the most skilled people I know. But at the time we met her, it was a fight to get her to smile at the audience. You know, like she wasn't being mean or anything. She was just really focused. You know, she had her focused face on in the whole show. And she really, over three years, Kim learned to talk to the audience and look at them and smile at them and genuinely enjoy interacting with the audience in a way that she hadn't when she first came to us. And I think it's so cool that she took that because she raised our level of skill tremendously. Like she made us all step up our game because she was way better than everybody else who was working with me at the time. So that really helped the visual of our show raise its level. And then when we got Uh back to North America and we had to start being funny again, that's where my 10 years of doing improvisational theater at the Renaissance Festival kicked in. So how long would you say the development of the Ariel Angel show took? Was it over one season, two seasons, three seasons before it really hit its mark, when it really started to, you know, hit its stride? I think it took three years to become good and five years to do shows where I was pretty happy with our connection with the audience and our skill level every single time. You know, like, you know, you get to a stage where, You've been working for a long time, you know your lines, you know your skills, and even if it's a bad day, even if it's raining, even if you're in a bad mood, even if it's a small crowd, there's only so bad you can be because you've established right. kind of like the base level that you're going to work okay. from. Yeah. And I think it took, yeah. us, it took us probably five years to get to there's only so bad we can be. Because I would say, too, our next big step was we started wearing matching costumes. Oh, congratulations. Genius. When we first started, we each wore a separate color because we thought it distinguished our characters. So everybody wore something that was black and fishnet and everybody wore a dominant color. So I was usually purple. Kim was usually pink. Zay was usually red. And then there was a time and we were at Victoria. We were at the Victoria Busker Fest. And I think it was me and Zay and and M.A., uh, who is now her own solo show, uh, M.A. Wyatt. She is now Flexi Lexi. Okay, hang on, hang on. Scotland. We've got, we've, we've got <laughs> so a bit of a people. who's who's list of people who've been involved in this show. Can yeah. we go back and can you run a list of people that have been an aerial angel over the years? I sure can. And it's kind of funny that you ask me that because I made a list this afternoon thinking, I wonder if that question will come up. Because so, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's different about Aerial Angels from a lot of other shows is that we were a franchise. 
We ran more than one team at the same time, so we could work two busker festivals or a busker festival and a corporate event simultaneously. And I taught people the same script, and people did their own acts. You know, they did their own choreography, but we always, okay, there's some talking with the audience. We open with a solo aerial act. Then there's a ground act with audience participation and comedy. Then we close with aerial silks or duo trapeze. So there was there was an uh, yeah. aerial angels formula, but within the context mm-hmm. of the formula of the show, people had a chance to do something that was specific to them. Yes. And the structure of the show was nice, too, because we could put people in the pre-show, quote unquote, and they could work on new acts or new moves in the quote unquote pre-show while gathering an audience and learning to be in front of an audience. Because the second thing that I think was kind of unique about us is we had a thriving internship program. So most years when Ariel Angels went on the road, we had a fourth person with us who was either just the helper intern and ran sound and carried stuff and helped out, or they would actually be a performer, but they would do much less in the show because they were young and new and learning the show and they got college credit for it. And I really enjoyed that. That was really cool to you know bring in people. So, so here's who we've had over the years. And this is in no particular order. Start with the very first, you and the first three ladies. Me, Beth, and Sarah. And we met at Western Michigan University. We were in a dance group together. Okay. Okay. Then Beth and I parted ways with Sarah. And then we had uh, Jared. Um, Jared is now in Los Angeles, and he's like a celebrity chef. Um, okay. Then we got, gosh, who else did we get? Then we got James and Zay. Uh, James and Zay are actually now a married couple, although they weren't at the time they worked for us. And they are now both out in Los Angeles doing improv. Uh-huh. Um, we got Christian, who we met in our training gym. Christian's out in Los Angeles doing TV. We got Rachel, who is now a wife and mother and performs for her church. We got right. Melissa Marie out of Chicago, who now runs a company whose name I cannot remember in New York, but she now does corporate and cruise ships and stuff in China. Um, Mm -hmm. People who we met in Michigan and who are now running their own companies in Michigan are Jackie and Cassie. Um, Jamie Hodgson was with us for quite a while. Jamie's fantastic. Uh, She teaches at the New England Center for Circus Arts now, and she also runs a company called Girls on Trapeze. And Jamie is like one of my favorite stories ever in two ways. When she auditioned for us, on her first move, she got tangled up in the fabric so bad that her teacher had to stand on my shoulders and cut her out of her shirt with scissors. And Jamie the whole time was like laughing and joking. And inside, Jamie's heart was sinking. And she was thinking, well, I bombed my audition. I guess I'm never going to work for them. And the whole time, we're on the ground thinking, this girl is so cool and funny. Even when she's in trouble, we totally want to work with her. Right, you know? right. And then my second favorite story about Jamie is, so she created this show with other women in the Northeast uh, in New England called Girls on Trapeze. That's a theatrical yeah. circus show. And Jamie said when they were sitting around trying to see, well, we did one successful show. Do we think we could do a tour? Well, it would be a lot of work, you know, and I don't know if we could do it. And Jamie said she thought about all the stuff she had learned in Ariel Angels and how much we were like, we can do this. And she looked at her group and she's like, we can do this. I can do it. I know I can book this and I know we can do it and I know we can do it well. And they did. Right. And that's that's just so cool. Um, Liza was also from the New England Center for Circus Arts. She's a yoga teacher now. Um, Maggie, Maddie, and Corellin all went on to circus school, and then Maddie joined Cirque du Soleil. Um, Macy is a performer and teacher in Memphis. Um, 
M.A. Wyatt is uh, now Flexi Lexi and has her own solo show in Europe. And she's married to David Wyatt, who is Figo. Uh, Kimberly Craig now does a show with her husband, Daniel Craig. Um, Richard Oaxaca went on to get his Master's of Fine Arts in Dance and works for Cruise Ships and Club Med and is actually coming back to teach for me later this year. Um, Anthony went to circus school and now Anthony choreographs and directs for, um, I think it's Cirque Ingenue and he does stuff for Palabolus and the woman who was then his girlfriend, whose name is Christine also worked for Palabolus and is now a fitness instructor out West. Um, Casey is now a hula hoop instructor and has her own company. Callie has her own aerial company in Memphis. Um, Nikki Drystadt, who was our best stage manager ever, uh, now works for Penn & Teller and for the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Um, Zach Martins is on Broadway. He was in Sleep No More because he's a phenomenal dancer. Katie Rebich went to circus school and is now teaching at Aloft in Chicago. Shelly Nock has uh, her own show. She stayed on the Renaissance Festival circuit, and she does a solo aerial show there. Um, I don't know what happened to Erica Fikowski, but I have to look her up on Facebook. And the woman who was our business manager for a while while she was in college, uh, Chelsea, now runs her own theater company that's an improv theater company in Orlando. Uh, Lilia and JD, who were my very last interns, um, with their partners, Caitlin and Shelly and Becky, they're all like related to each other like family. They started an aerial program at a gym in Traverse City. Nolan and Sarah ended up together and are now working in Seattle and they do like Burning Man stuff. Um, Alex is now a noted young adult fantasy author. Um, Erin Clark is an author and a disability advocate because she's an aerialist who also uses a wheelchair. Um, Sora Soul was already working for us when she came, so I can't really take credit for her, but she now has her own company and worked with us for quite some time. And then Marina Petrano was an intern for us and then went to the New England Center for Circus Arts, then came back to us as a company member, and she is the person I have passed on the Aerial Angels mantle to. She is now the artistic director, and then she also has a solo show. Holy smokes. How many I, is that? In I total? didn't realize how many track. there were until I listed them. Like I went on Facebook and I'm like, oh my God, who do I not remember? Okay. So I would say 39 people who kind of came to me at a formative time. And then there right. are probably 10 more people who either were already established performers, but they were with us for you know a season or some months or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So clearly you approached this world in a much different fashion than almost all street performers that I know. Yes. And when you said the word franchise, the first thing that pops into my mind when I hear franchise is McDonald's. Absolutely. It's a package that everybody knows. It's uh, a product that is reproducible. It's mm-hmm. that consistency that is, it goes out into it. And it's the same kind of thing. It brings in young people, trains them up, makes them good employees, teaches them a lot of stuff. And in fact, I've had people who'd worked for McDonald's who have been friends of mine who said, one of the best jobs I've ever had because it taught me so much that I've then been able to take with me through the rest of my life. Yeah. However, mm-hmm. and I don't want this, I, I kind of want to find the, the, you the right way to say You say what you want to say and that's okay. I'm not going to be offended because I'm really excited to talk about this. Okay. So a McDonald's hamburger is not a gourmet experience. And I think the Aerial Angels have been accused of creating a McDonald's experience as opposed to creating a unique, specific experience that, say, uh, an entertainer who has been at it for 15 or 20 years has 
crafted over the years. They put in their time. They continue to research it. They continue to grow. It's their performance history. It's them. The whole thing. The whole thing is them. It's mm-hmm. like the the gourmet chef hamburger versus the McDonald's hamburger. Now, they both have their place. However, if you're a gourmet chef, you kind of poo-poo the McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> and I think that's happened to you. I think that people in the street performance world have poo-pooed the the aerial angels because they sort of view it like the McDonald's hamburger of the street and that it's it's taught younger people. It's it's those young interns have not mm-hmm. had to suffer through the five years without the guidance of somebody who's really taken them under their wing and mm-hmm. sent them along their way. And so there's, I think, uh, uh, like the notion too, that you can have multiple shows of the same show, mm-hmm. I think just rubs people a little bit the wrong way. It's like, no, no, there's one, there was only one Robert Nelson, for example. Yes. There's yes. only one JP McKendry, for yes. example. I'm just, there are 36 aerial angels. Right. So, how, how so is, I guess here's the thing. It yeah, it has worked. And I guess, I mean, the glib answer is you guys scoff all you want. I'm going to be over here cashing my check and basking in the admiration of the audience who loves me, you know, which is sure. like the glib, you know, kind of mean way to go. To put it in McDonald's terms, it's like McDonald's is making a shitload of money. Billions like and billions served. Yeah, billions and billions yeah. served. And so that's a business model that, mm-hmm. and that so, works. I want to but point I think it, a lot yeah. of people on the street. I think a lot of the people who are attracted to street performing mm-hmm. as a career or as a, a lifestyle, because mm-hmm. it's more of a lifestyle than a career on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. I think they chose to become street entertainers to escape exactly what you've created. Uh huh. And so that's again where you get some pushback. Yeah, you know, and I think it's interesting because. I've heard rumors of that criticism, but no one has ever expressed it to my face, which I find really interesting. I'd also be curious to know, does Julio, USA Breakdancers, does he get criticized for rotating in a new cast of young black and Hispanic men every other season? Do the Calypso Tumblers get criticized for rotating in a new group of young black and Hispanic men every season? You know, or is it just, I think, is it girls? I think there are other challenges with the breakdancers that come up as a sore point for a lot of performers. Whether yes. it's the rotating in of new people is not necessarily the question that comes up so much so, as, holy cow, those guys are loud. And holy cow, those yeah. guys are not doing exactly what you discussed earlier, which is, they're not being a good neighbor to other shows on the circuit. Yes. I, I, and and yeah. Julio's a great example of somebody who understands the etiquette. And yeah. that's probably why he's had so much success with it, because he has been aware of what it takes to be invited back to an event. Yeah. And so many of the other street performer busker break dancers Do will never work a street performer festival. No, yeah. they would never get invited to a festival because they don't have the etiquette. Yeah. I think it depends on... How much value do we place on suffering? Because there is this concept that, oh, I put in my dues. You know, how come you don't have to pay your dues? And I kind of feel like, well, at the point that I formed Aerial Angels, I had already been performing in past the hat venues for 12 years. So I had already spent a fair amount of time shivering in the rain with no audience in front of me and being not funny for a really long time. I think there is value in bringing in performers who do not live near a street performance venue, have maybe never seen a street performer, because I think a lot of people don't realize in the USA, 
we don't really have busker festivals. You know, there's a couple in California. There's some fringe festivals that sometimes have a busker component, but we don't have the same kind of street performance tradition that there is in Canada. We have one dude with a guitar, but we don't have very many circle show street performers. So I would say 50% of the people who worked for me had never even seen a street show before. So mm-hmm. they were not, they did not even know they had the dream to run away and, you know, join the circus, so to speak. I think there is value in teaching. I really, I'm discovering, and it's funny because now I'm on my third or fourth career, I guess, where I'm a writer and an editor, and I'm discovering I still love teaching. I love working with people and watching them discover and guiding them and letting them try stuff and fail. And yeah, you know, so the college student who came and did, you know, her own aerial hoop act in my show for a summer, maybe she didn't pay her dues for five or six years, but she learned a skill about performing in front of an audience and about doing your best for the audience and having that street performer heart where it's not Mm -hmm. about how hot and uncomfortable you are. You're going to do a show and you're going to do a good show. It's not about how wet and cold you are. It's, well, what can we do safely in the rain for the six people huddled under the awning over there who didn't leave? It's Mm -hmm. how can I meet these other people and gain from what they know and learn more about theater from that. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Zach Martins, who was an intern with us and then a company member with us over the course of three years, I met Zach when he was a high school student. And Zach went on to be in Sleep No More on Broadway, which is that massive interactive show that takes place over a whole building where the performers are moving in and out of the audience and the audience is wandering through the building. And, you know, Zach gained a lot of his chops for being comfortable interacting with an audience directly and breaking the fourth wall from working with us. The other thing too is working on the franchise model lets me hire people who are better than me because I'm funny. You know, I can really bring the funny and I wrote most of the show, but I am not as physically skilled as pretty much anyone I have hired. Just about everybody who's worked with me has been either a little bit or substantially more physically skilled than me, which is why I think then they move on and they go form their own shows or they go to circus school or they go pursue their dream of becoming an actor or they own their own theater company. And we were never a destination for performers to be in. I think the, you know, I was with us the longest and for me it was 12 years. And Mm -hmm. I think the longest anybody else was with us was five or six years because they grow and at first, it really hurt me when people moved on. Like, I felt like, you know, oh, you know, don't, don't you love this enough to stay with it? But part of teaching is letting your little fledglings fly the nest. And I think there's something valuable about that experience that compensates for the lack of, oh, you didn't pay your dues. Because it seems, too, like maybe they didn't shiver in the cold for five years in front of no audience and not being funny and starving but why does that have to be the path in? It just seems to have been the path for a lot of people. And so when they see another path that isn't something that they can necessarily relate to, I think it just gets resistance. Yeah. And so it's just a different way of doing things. And clearly, you've had no problem with doing things differently your entire career. You just make up your choices <laughs> and you, you follow them. I mean, it's like clearly, I mean, 12 years, 50 different people that you've touched with that particular project, mm-hmm. the company. 
people will talk about it for years, years and years and years and years. That is my legacy. You know, my legacy is that people have gone on to do other things. I was not their destination. I was a way station. Ariel Angels was a way station for people to discover who they are as performers. And some of them discovered, oh man, I am not a street performer. This makes me nuts. I can't do it. You know, I have done all the politeness you told me to do to other performers and I have said the lines you taught me to say and it is not comfortable for me. But there's also people who came in and were like, wow, I like this. And you know what, Allison? I want to do it differently than you're doing it. So I'm going to go make my own company now. I'm going to go make my own show now. And yeah, it does hurt my feelings a little bit because, I mean, we all want to be everyone's first and best love, you know, but at the same time, it also makes me so proud that they didn't just listen to what I had to say. They started thinking their own thoughts. They started making their own shows. And I would argue as well that a circus show in particular is operating at a high enough level of skill and a high enough level of danger that it takes a functioning and disciplined team to be able to execute a show and maintain that high level of skill and that high level of danger and do that safely. And I think that's something where because we plugged in different people into the show, they had a structure where they could focus on, I am going to safely execute my brand new move while smiling and spinning. And they weren't having to think about, and by the way, maybe I'll make enough money to eat tonight. Or, gosh, I really screwed up that joke. I think it let us become more physically skilled that the performers had that safety net of the framework of an established show around them. Now, I'm going to just say that at one point in that, that conversation, that, that rambling that, monologue, that, that, that long monologue, <laughs> at one point in that long monologue, you said this was never a destination for people. And I'm wondering if that was the way you looked at it as well. Like, did you ever see this as your full time career forever and ever and ever? Or did you see it as this is this chapter of my life? I'm going to move on to something else. I mean, for you, the company that you started with two mm-hmm. other women and then sort of you became the identifiable iconic figure for that company. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you like that company is you more than anybody else that's gone through it. Yes. And when you got to the end of doing shows, what is going to happen with that company? Because it's, it's, you can hand the reins onto somebody else, but it's not going to be Ariel angels anymore. It's not going to be Allison Williams. It's going to transition into something different. Yes. How does that make you feel? You know, the first six months was really rough and I kept like, ah, I mean, it helped that I worked with Marina for 18 months before the handover. So she really had a lot of guidance and she really had, you know, me as a resource for contracting and travel and, you know, and she still carries a company credit card. I mean, that's, that's like something about Ariel Angels right there. We got a company credit card, you know? Um, but, uh, It's gotten easier and easier as I get more focused on the writing that I do now and the editing work that I do now because I'm really excited about those things. I mean, I was ready to make the change when at Victoria this past year, which is a beautiful busker fest. I love Victoria. It's an amazing place to be. Good audiences, nice festival. You know, the guy who runs it is just terrific. And I found that I really enjoyed doing the show. It was really fun to be there in front of the audience and to do my skills and to feel physically great. But I didn't wake up in the morning thinking, oh man, I can't wait to do a show today. I woke up in the morning thinking, okay, I got to spend like three hours on shows today and in between that I can write. You know, And so I right. started to feel the friction of, 
I have mentally moved on to do something else, you know, and I'm, um, out here in the Middle East, I also do some event management for uh, Stuart Every at Dolphin Creative, who runs busker festivals out here in the Middle East. And I've discovered mm-hmm. I freaking love stage managing. I love making sure the people are comfortable. I love making sure that the performers have the stuff they need, that the security is paying attention. You know, like Stuart uh, pointed me into this mall in Kuwait, the one that I, I later ended up performing at. And we got pointed to a new green room that was this like room with a gray concrete floor and like this Star Trekky fluorescent lighting that was horrible. And the room was completely empty. Like it was a bare concrete floor and nothing else. And Stuart's right. like, well, I guess people will just have to hang out in cafes and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh no, they won't. And five trips to Ikea scratch and dent and like the local beanbag store and everything later, we had a really nice green room with carpet on the floor so people could stretch and beanbag chairs to lie in and even a couch that I found in Ikea scratch and dent and like curtains in the corner so that people could change clothes and there were nuts and there was fruit and there was water. And, you know, because I really love that nesting on behalf of other people. I really love doing that. And, and I found that, oh, it's actually more fun to manage the festival now than it is to go out and do the show. I still love doing the show. It still feels good to perform and I'm still a freaking show off in my personal life, you know, sure. but my brain just shifted, you know? And I mean, the joke is I'm too old to stand next to two 20 year olds in identical spandex outfits, but it uh-huh. really is that like my attention has shifted. I am more attentive now to a different experience. Now, when we did that show at for the Chrysler Corporation in 2011, was that mm-hmm. sort of early on with your event production? At the time, that was the largest event I had ever managed. Um, so we did Chrysler Employee Day that took place over the Chrysler campus, both indoors and out. And we filled two circus tents with continuous entertainment for an eight-hour day. I had one circus tent going with circle shows in it, and I had another circus tent going with five- to seven-minute-long circus acts in it. We brought in a trampoline. We had a whole bunch of aerial rigging. We had trussing. We had the whole deal. And then we also had roving performers moving around the grounds and moving through the building that was quite literally a mile long. And... That was the biggest thing I had ever done up to that point. And it was really interesting because when I got the call to do that gig, when somebody said, you know, oh, hey, we need this, this, and this, it was that thing about the skill set all coming together where I didn't think, oh, how am I going to do this? I thought, okay, these performers are my first choice people. And if they can't make it, these are my second choice people. And I'd like to get them, but they might be too far away for an airplane ticket. And that was the first gig where I didn't even think of myself as performing. It did not even occur to me that I was going to do an act in there. It was just like, I'm going to boss this sucker because it's going to take a full-time boss walking all day. And it actually took two full-time bosses because my partner, Zay Weaver, was assisting me in directing the entire shebang. Although Zay also took part in a couple of aerial acts, but it took somebody with a clipboard and a walkie-talkie walking around all day long. And that was a shift for me. That was a shift where it was like, oh, I don't want to be the performer at this gig. I want to be the boss. And did that feel good? It felt great. We killed at that event. And I I can say that collectively with you, David, because you were there and you did an amazing job. Yeah, you were fantastic. I think it was actually the first place where I really got to like talk to you as a person, you know, rather than just like, oh, hey, I'm on my way to a show. You're on your way to a show, you know. And it was, to a large extent, I feel like that event... I don't know that it necessarily changed people's minds about me, 
but I think it helped people see me as someone who was competent and focused and had something to offer rather than just this upstart crow putting on a show where sure it's girls in spandex and they have a big rig. You know, I, I think that was what really established me in a lot of people's minds as being in the adult phase of my career. No, it was amazing because I walked in and you just kept tight reins on that event. You <laughs> kept everyone moving to where they needed to be. Okay, just be quiet. I have to tell you this important information. Okay, now you've got it. Okay, we're moving to the next place where I have to tell you some more important information. Good, you got that. Now we're going to this important. And it was just like tech, 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 tech all the way along. You answered all the questions. You made sure that the information that we needed to have was delivered so that there were no questions so that you didn't have to deal with stupid questions later in the day. It was just like, we already know that because you've already told it to us. Thanks. But you uh, you herded cats because, again, there were people <laughs> from the street performance world, the Renaissance Festival world, the circus world, yeah. all of whom operate at slightly different frequencies. I even all had a whom- four-man contingent from Burning Man in there. And boy, was that exciting. <laughs> but you were able to clearly articulate the needs of the client and the needs of the performer and accommodate all to create an event that was super successful and super fun. I mean, I, I, the best moments of that were not at the shows. I mean, the shows were all fine and the day went great, but it was more for me. The interesting thing was hanging out at the hotel afterwards because we all just lived in different worlds. And it was all of a sudden, all the worlds that you had occupied through various stages in your career collided in this beautiful symbiotic fantasticness of, wow, yeah, we're not from the same places or perform at the same kind of events, but we all get the same language. We're a Venn diagram and then Chrysler and Allison are at the middle of this Venn diagram. Right. It was crazy. And and yeah, great. And I kind of saw that event. Like I know you'd done other things prior to it. I know you'd done fairly important big things prior to that. Nothing that Uh, big, though. Well, the one that pops into my mind was going on to Dragon's Den and securing (laughs) a contract on that. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That was my biggest failure. Um, It's Yeah, so we went on Dragon's Den. Zay and Kim and I prepped for Dragon's Den, and then Zay and I actually went on Dragon's Den, and we were neurotic in our prep for it. We listened to every episode of Dragon's Den and we made sure that we had an answer for every question that had ever been asked on Dragon's Den. Um, you don't do a whole business plan for the dragons, but the show makes you submit a business plan to them. So we did like a 45-page business plan with budgets and everything and we planned out this big show. And we had done some preliminary work already in this show. A group of about 15 of us got together in uh, Atlanta, Georgia the year before and started like brainstorming on what material would be in the show and how would it go. Um, you know, and I thought I was going to just like raise money like a theater funder and figure out, you know, how to pay for it eventually because I figured the show was going to cost, you know, eighty or $100,000. Mm-hmm. And um, we got the money from Dragon's Den. We got a yes from one of the dragons. And uh, he said, you know, I think you need more money than you're asking for. So I want to give you uh, $250,000, you know, so a quarter of a million Canadian dollars. And, uh, and he officially owned half of the show. And I had this dream where we were going to go into a room together and I was going to hire all my best and favorite performers and like 
house them in nice hotel rooms and pay them for rehearsal time and pay them per diems and take care of them. And they were all going to get to do whatever act they wanted to do that we all collaborated on together. And through the course of that, I learned two really valuable things. Number one, I learned that a lot of people don't want to be a beautiful creative artist. They want to be told where to go and what to do so that they can do it and then be done. You know, and that's a perfectly Mm -hmm. appropriate way to work. And more people than I thought prefer to work that way than to work collaboratively. And I didn't, I wasn't sophisticated enough, I think, to recognize that that was an issue. And then I also learned how to fire people because I had a person who was just really poisoning the entire company. And I saw it coming in like the early rehearsals in Orlando. And then I saw it some more when we started putting up the show for the first time. And I kept thinking, oh, I can't let that person go. I don't have a reason to let them go because I didn't quite have my head wrapped around the idea that you're an asshole and you're ruining the process is enough reason Mm -hmm. to fire somebody and you're allowed to do that, you know? And so it was very interesting, like kind of watching this dream sort of crash and burn around my ears. And we did actually have two shows, uh, both in Michigan, where we performed for, you know, jam-packed audiences. One of them was an arena show that we did for 4,000 people. One of them was a theater show that we did for a sellout crowd of 2,000 people. And those were where the show was at its peak. You know, the show rocked, people loved it, all the acts were tight, everybody knew their lines, everything was great. And that kind of gave me like this glimpse of where the show could have gone. Mm -hmm. But I think because of my inexperience with managing a company in that way and being in charge of all the tech elements and all the money as well... I made some choices that like going back in time, I wouldn't have made. And it's funny because, and and I mean, and then we went on America's Got Talent and, and, you know, that was a whole nother thing, but it was, it was really sad to have the people whose work I loved most and the people I respected the most and take them into a room and throw money at them. And when they walked into the room, they loved me and trusted me and were ready to go with me. And when we all walked out of the room, I was the enemy. And I didn't understand how I could give people this gift of creative freedom or what I saw as a gift of creative freedom. I mean, everybody got money to go study their act for a week with whatever coach they wanted, even outside of rehearsals. And I like paid for people's plane tickets and stuff. And I think it was, it was really rough. I mean, it was really rough to just like, you know, go through 200 grand and have, you know, I have a box truck full of equipment and that's what I have to show for it. And that was, that was probably my biggest failure, you know, and I learned more about how to manage a group of people. And I learned that I'm no longer willing to let people take my money with one hand and slap me with the other. So I came out of that show this wasn't like all at once. This was a gradual disintegration over two and a half years, you know, and we were doing some really massive things with equipment. And I bought a 30 foot box truck and, you know, all this stuff that cost a lot of money. And then the show dissolved and nobody really talked to anybody ever again. And Mm -hmm. then 
I went into a show like a year later or two years later where myself and four other performers, completely different performers, we had all done an agricultural fair together in Ontario. We had a really good time. We really enjoyed performing together. And, you know, it was kind of the Ariel Angel show, but it was mostly like a group show that we just did, you know, four times in a row. Mm-hmm. We really enjoyed it. And I got a commission from the Detroit Institute of Arts to bring them a Halloween show. And we had done a Halloween show for them once before. And they'd always been one of my favorite clients because the client says, I want you to make children cry. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. good. We are so down with this. And we had the whole theater and we put together a show called Sleepwalkers. And it opens in kind of this like, you know, 1984-ish, metropolis-ish, you know, hellish office scape with desks and old-fashioned typewriters and just huge stacks of paper. And, you know, the clerks are all working away and being, you know, abused by the horrible boss, which was me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then everybody goes home, but the one guy falls asleep and he wakes up in this circus underworld, you know, and it was kind of edgy and kind of cirky. And then at the end, we tried this thing that we couldn't try it in rehearsal because it would only work once. We had um, aerial fabrics that were white hanging up and the three girls came out like kind of crouched over and dragging these wash tubs, like like horse trough wash tubs, mm-hmm. round ones. And they were dressed like they were naked. They were in, you know, nude unitards. And they dragged the wash tubs out to beneath the silks and the wash tubs were full of blood. And so as the acts continued, the stage blood seeped up into the aerial silks and covered the girls' bodies as they went down into the wash tubs and back up into the fabric. And it was just like this amazing visual that only could work once, you know, so it had to work on the night. Did it it work? It looked so incredible. There's a trailer of uh, the show, like a cut together video of what the show looked like on YouTube. We'll put the link in the show notes. It worked so well. And we we had a sold out theater, you know, it was 1,500, 1,700 people. We got a huge standing ovation. Everybody fucking loved it. We had put the show together in that way where you go to your friends, you know, oh, you do this act, but can you do it to this music instead? And you do that act, but can you do it to this music instead? And then you two both juggle. So can you juggle knives, please, while she walks through the middle? And I mean, we really threw the show together in like a day and a half and it killed And that, for me, kind of took the sting out of the Dragon's Den-related failure because it made me go, oh, it wasn't me. It was just a bad situation. People had weird stuff going on in their lives. People had, you know, relationships breaking up. And it was just a really bad combination that I did not have the managerial skills at that time to smooth over and make happen. And then with Sleepwalkers at the Detroit Institute of Arts, all of a sudden I was like, oh... I made this show, you know, people brought their acts, people brought their skills, people brought their incredible performance talent, but I'm the one who picked those acts and picked those people and put everything in order and designed the set and made sure we had all the stuff and made sure everything told the right story. And it really just kind of restored my confidence in myself and my ability to create a show by bringing people together. Does that all make any kind of a coherent, dramatic loop? (laughs) Yeah, you got back to it eventually. And it did put a nice sort of transition between Dragon's Den as a failure and then finding success beyond it. Yeah. Nice. We failed big time at Dragon's Den. At least I failed on somebody else's dime. Sorry, Brett. Congrats. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that happens. So 10 years at the beginning of your career Mm -hmm. with the Daredevils and then 12 years with the Aerial Angels. But a lot of that 
time was kind of near the end of it, you were being dragged towards something else. Yeah. Uh, successes, like you learned how to be a performer early on. You learned how to be a manager with the Aerial Angels. And then you took those skills and you started producing. I mean, I've been able to work with you a bunch of different times, be at the Chrysler event and then a couple of times at Dundas. Uh-huh. What's the next 10-year chapter for you going to be? Um, you know, there's a beautiful cartoon called Seven Lives that we should also put the link to in the show notes. But my next stage right now is I'm a full-time freelance writer and editor. And I had been writing off and on pretty much my whole life. And during the last couple of years of Ariel Angels, or before that, actually, 2011, 2012, I was in this online writing contest that involved writing a new thing every week for 10 and a half months. And it Mm -hmm. started with 365 contestants. And then like the low voted people were voted out of the contest every week over 10 and a half months. And at the end of it, I won. And I had created a whole bunch of short pieces of work by writing 48 pieces for this writing contest. And I had also, because you had to get votes, and if you were going to win, you had to get votes from outside the contest, like readers who came in and were on your team and not just people who were in the contest, because then only you know, the most popular people on that website were going to win. But I had built a group of people who actually wanted to read my work and were like, oh, hey, when's the next thing coming out? I love reading your stuff. And and it made me think, okay, yeah, this is something that I can do and that I can do well. And so I've been writing freelance up until now, and now it's my full-time thing. I've been published in the New York Times and in the Christian Science Monitor. Um, I've been on National Public Radio. I've been on The Moth, which is a storytelling show. I was on Definitely Not the Opera, which is a CBC show. I was on Love Me, which is another CBC show. And then I made it onto Snap Judgment, which is like one of my dream radio shows to be on. It's great. Yeah, yeah it's a great show they rebroadcast my thing from Love Me. I didn't even like get in from an audition or anything. I just got in because they liked my story, you know? Wow. And so I write now. I write and I, I, I do some stuff uh, that's circus related. Like I just wrote an article for Dance Australia about what circus training is like and how that compares to dance training, like what it's like to go to circus school. Um, uh-huh. I do some like creative personal stuff, like personal essays uh, for literary magazines like Brevity and Prairie Schooner and stuff like that. I write a lot of blog posts. I'm a social media editor for a literary magazine called Brevity. Um, and then I'm also working on a couple of books right now. My first book actually was just a how-to book. It's called Get Published in Literary Magazines. And it's just for you know people who want to send out their work and get published. Um, and I'm working on a companion book to that called Self-Edit Like a Pro. But then I'm also working on a young adult novel right now. You're still dabbling in producing, though. You're still enjoying. It's like yeah. I think once you've been in the performance world, it's hard to leave it entirely. Yes, I agree. I'm still managing events for Dolphin Creative here in the Middle East. Um, I do the mall show in Kuwait when we go back to Kuwait. I've done a couple of other things for him. I think I'm going to end up in Kazakhstan at some point. You know, I still manage the Dundas Busker Festival. I'm the artistic director for them, and that's been really lovely. Like, I really love making a nice, supportive environment for the performers, so that all they have to do is go do their best show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. In the long run, like 20 years ago, I started working with the woman who is my business slash life coach, a woman named Jean Johnson, who's just terrific if you're ever at a crossroads. And one of the things I did with Jean was I wrote out, you know, what's my mission in life? And the mission is something that I can always go back to and go, okay, if I'm going to do project A or project B, which one contributes the most to the mission? 
that's the one that it's right to do, you know, and, and I decided, and this sounds a little pretentious, but I truly mean it. My mission is to facilitate the experience of joy and enlightenment. And so as Mm. long as I am bringing joy or teaching, I'm a happy girl. Allison Williams, thank you. Thank Thank you you for your time. Thank you for spending, I mean, it's already what, almost a... It's 1030 1030? at night here. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. I have a very loving and understanding husband. Congratulations. Well done on that too. Another chapter of your life too. I know. And I got to tell you, like I went after having a, a good husband this time, the same way I would plan a show and it worked out real well. Only this one, I'm definitely not franchising. (laughs) (laughs) and on that note let's wrap it up all right um thank you so much that was really just delightful i really appreciate it take care Bye. bye Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop Magic Brian a line at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, a moment from the Ariel Angels show script that felt like the perfect way to finish this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, one more thing. In this day and age when so many people spend so much time sitting at home, alone, in front of a glowing screen, thank you for coming out today and choosing to spend some time sharing something real and alive with us and with your friends and with your family. You guys have been a fantastic audience. Thank you. On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. Oh my goodness, I am exhausted.